Hello, everyone. Welcome to Intersections, where inner mastery meets outer impact. I am Hitendra Vadva, your host for the day. It is a joy to be back in action with all of you. And I want to start with a story. So um, several years ago, about 12 years ago, I was teaching at Columbia. And at that time, I was teach classes in marketing and in strategy. I had just wrapped up the semester. I was teaching my last class to our MBAs on a marketing subject. And um, by that time, I would fall in love with my students. I would be just so sort of both inspired by them and connected with them. And I would just feel a sense of like a dampening of spirit about how they and I were going to go our own ways, you know, at the end of this class, the last class of the semester. And so this time around, I felt a surge of motivation to be of the highest service I could to them. And so the night before the lecture, I pivoted a little bit and I said, you know what, let me use the last 15 minutes to offer to them the most powerful lessons that I have learned about life and leadership since I matured after I was their age. So I went back to the time I was about 27, 28, their age to where I was then. And then I said, what are the biggest things I've learned? And the next day in class, when it was about 15 minutes to go, I told them that this is about all I could offer to you about marketing. But I wanted to share a couple of thoughts about life and leadership. And so here are three stories I want to leave you with, recognizing that all of us are never going to come back together as a collective after these last 15 minutes. And so I shared what I had to. And then the class wrapped up and people gave thoughtful applause and, and, and then they were leaving. And then this one student, all right, he comes up to me. This one student whose name is Minjun, he says, Professor, I want to thank you for the class. It has been a very valuable learning experience for me. And I also want to tell you that the most valuable learnings to me came from the last 15 minutes. That was a turning point in my career because it is in that moment that I got solidified with this um, sense that I had that more personal sharing can in fact be a tremendous force of inspiration and influence with people. Until then, I shied away from sharing my stories. I would share stories about great organizations and great brands and great leaders, but I wasn't really sharing like my stories. And that was the first time I really was able to provide authentic expression to what was stirring within me. From there on, I was able to launch this class on personal leadership. And at some point early in that class, I got this sense that here's all this wisdom and experience, et cetera, that I am bringing from the outside. But I think there's something happening in this class. There's, there's some magic here that I also need to draw out from my own audience. And so I created an assignment in the class. I asked all of the students to come to class prepared to share a personal journey, a story from their lives, from their careers, something that related you know, to either to them or perhaps to a loved one or to a former mentor or boss, or just like a poem that had truly inspired them in their life or, or a certain hobby that they had, which really enriched their experience of, of the world. And I said, you're going to get three to five minutes. That's it. That's your platform. And speak from the heart and do it as a service to us, as a contribution to us. That was it. And uh, then I stepped back from the front stage of the class. And each of them would start coming up and sharing the personal journey. And I tell you, I was on tender hooks. I was just so anxious about how this moment is going to go because I'm losing control. I'm losing control at a very, very critical moment in the advancement of personal leadership in this class. And I had no clue what might transpire there. And um, 
having done that, having ceded control, having just like sparked something, I have been amazed, amazed at the power of these personal journeys. And today, I'm here with you reflecting on that experiment 5,000 stories later. There have been um, hundreds of stories that I've had the privilege of experiencing literally every, every year. And um, I know how transformational it has been for both my students and for me. And so I thought at this critical hour, with all that is going on in the world, what more pivotal a moment than this for us to use to really dive within, process our life experiences, what is, what is stirring within each of us, and create a certain structure and scaffolding through which we can start drawing that out. And some of you are going to be natural storytellers, and others might have it as a latent capability within you, but you may not have given it active expression, just like I hadn't until I am so grateful to Minjun for having come and kind of helped me get there. And so I thought, what better moment than this to actually create that invitation for you and for all of us? And I want to do it not just merely as a conversation today with all of you, not just uh, sharing some examples, uh, giving you some guidance on what I've learned over the years as to how to do that effectively. But I also want to do it with um, an eye towards creating a community, creating a project where we can, in fact, come together. And I can hear your stories just as much as you might hear some from me today about myself and my former students so that we can collect these stories in a library that is digital and that is searchable so that tomorrow when one of you is becoming a parent or another one is transitioning from one career to another or a third one is agonizing for a certain choice as to whether they should go down an entrepreneurial path or not. A fourth one, for example, is, um, is having a real, real struggle with having just been laid off. A fifth one is facing kind of a health issue. In any or all of these situations, if there is this library of peers, just kind of everyday figures, just like you and me, who have shared their hero's journey, the power of their personal journey in some searchable format, I think you will see from the kinds of stories that I will share today with you, and for those of you who've been in this class, from what you remember from the stories that were shared there, the incredible possibilities in these stories to connect us, to inform us, and to inspire us. So that is the intention and purpose of our conversation today. How does that sound? So um, let me kind of like uh, build on some of these thoughts and ideas you've offered. I just want to kind of like nuance them a little bit and give you a little bit more fine-tuned understanding. So, so, so one thing, you know, as an example, there's somebody on, on, on my team and um, she has shared a very personal story with me of a certain moment in her life and how she overcame an adversity. And I tell you, every time I interact with her, and this has now been many months into like my learning about the story from her, every time I interact with her, if I'm ever feeling a little bit unhappy with her, I get this story to flash in my mind. And then it is so easy for me to just like exercise so much patience and understanding with her, knowing what a hero she has been with the adversity that she has uh, transcended you know, and overcome in some beautiful ways. So that's one of the benefits of, of, of storytelling is that you create this deeper bond, this deeper appreciation for like that, that hero within you know, has shared the story with you. Another kind of benefit that I think is kind of like just worth keeping in mind is that think about how cultures are built. One of the first things that we you hear as little babies, often before we even know language, is the stories that our caregivers, you know, our parents, for example, share with us from our culture. And the values of that culture are encoded in those stories. And so silently, 
the culture is getting encoded in our DNA, even as little children, through the power of storytelling. So it's a powerful mechanism through which to propagate culture. As many of you have shared, stories are engaging, so it's a very interesting way through which to transmit ideas. They're memorable. When people walk out of the room, they may not remember the facts, the data, the charts, the analysis, the logic, but it is quite likely that if you've shared a really good story, that they will remember the story. So it's much more memorable. Stories are also really a nice way to not just inform people at the intellectual level, but to inspire them at the heart level. So that again, it's not just that the mind is convinced, but their heart is actually on fire to pursue a certain kind of path, you know, based on what the stories you know, invited them to do. Also, stories are things that people like to share with others. So if you've got a good story that you've offered, right, and that story is your way of imparting a certain idea or value, well, then that story, when it is shared by people with others, well, they are then starting to propagate that value to others as well. Stories is also a great way for you to kind of like teach somebody a lesson or push somebody back on something, but in a way that will be considered very non-judgmental, right? And so with the story, you're imparting a certain sort of like, you know, message to them, but you're doing it in a way which says like, I, I'm not seeking to judge. I, I'm not seeking to push back. I, I just want to offer this story, right? And you allow them to draw the conclusion for themselves. And implicit in that is the power of stories, right? Now, uh, let, me, let me sort of like offer up um, one, one kind of ace storyteller to you. And this is uh, the following, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is well known to have been um, an incredible storyteller and to have used it to really great effect in his influencing and inspirational kind of work, you know, as um, a candidate initially and then as president of the country in the United States. Now, where did he learn the craft of storytelling? Well, it's interesting because when he was a young lawyer in Illinois, there was a practice that he and his fellow lawyers used to engage in, which is that in the evening when they were done with work, they would go over to a local bar and they would sit there and they would engage, believe it or not, in a storytelling competition, a storytelling competition where each of them was meant to share a story. And at the end of the night, they would adjudge who was the winner, who had the most powerful story. Now, let's just do some math on that. All right. Let's say that you were Lincoln. And let's say you, do, you did that for about three years. And let's say you did that for about three nights, you know, every, every week, right? So three nights times about 50 weeks. That's about 150 evenings when you're doing it times three years. That's about 450 evenings. You had 450 opportunities to share stories, not just share stories, but get feedback from the audience as to how effectively they landed or didn't land. And not just that, if there were like, let's say four or five other friends of yours, you collected together another about four or 500 stories from each of them. Does that make sense? I mean, it is an incredible you know, asset that you built just by creating a certain habit in how you were actually going to engage with each other over the course of a few years, right? And so it is quite possible that Lincoln became a great storyteller because he had, in fact, had a chance to do so much practice with it. And that's certainly going to be one of my recommendations to you, which is that if this is something that you're impassioned about, then create forums where you can practice. I found it to be really beneficial just to at times practice at home you know, with, with my family or, or with a friend or casually with a small team and watch their reaction. How engaged are they? At the end, did your message land? Did they find it to be an interesting story? Did it have the impact? And if not, don't feel bruised and burned just feel like you've gained some new understanding about what's working and what's not working, and then keep working on that. Okay, now 
Let me kind of offer up one more dimension to the benefits of storytelling. See, when we tell stories, the power of that is not merely to the other party to whom you're sharing the story, but the power of these stories is also to you yourself. What do I mean by that? We are telling stories to ourselves all the time in our own minds. We are taking events in our life and we are weaving some meaning around them and that becomes a story. And the point is, depending on the kind of storyteller you are, you're going to either benefit from less stress and more happiness and more of a sense of empowerment in life or the opposite, right? I shared a little bit in a previous episode when I brought in Joe Zhu on managing adversity. I shared a little bit about the psychology of storytelling and what the scientists have discovered about our tendency as human beings innately just to interpret our life events through the lens of stories and how there are these two kinds of people, those who tend to tell more stories about bummer, this didn't happen, I feel a little bit bitter, and etc. And those who tell stories about I'm grateful and then that happened and it was a setback, but then I learned this and grew in this way, etc. And so the kind of stories you tell kind of shapes who you become in life and leadership. And so just paying attention to the unconscious weaving of facts and meaning into stories that is happening in the background of our minds is a critical component of our personal leadership. And so to that end, let us get into the craft of storytelling, right? And uh, what I want to do is just uh, start by sharing a story with you of something that happened in my own life, right? So um, a year and a half ago or so, I had the incredible privilege of going to uh, Israel with my wife, my daughter, and my mother. And we had a really blessed time in Israel. We were gaining so much from the spiritual richness of of that uh, country. And um, at the end of it, uh, we were in Tel Aviv. And my mother had gone to sleep. My wife and I and my daughter were at dinner at a um, restaurant. And the conversation got uh, to descend into a bit of sense of just dismay about the state of affairs in the world, about how a certain leader was behaving in a certain way, how a certain nation wasn't you know, getting it in a certain way, how a certain aspect of culture was you know, going wrong, not right, and etc. And I remember in that moment, there was a lurking sort of just like concern within my mind that, hey, Hitendra, we should be agents of positivity and hope and change. And we shouldn't allow ourselves to wallow in this kind of just like negative discourse for more than just like 30 seconds or so. And this has gone up a little bit longer. But I kind of really ignored that little intuition in me. And we went on and we further lamented about the state of the world (laughs) and all that. And then dinner dinner got over, right? And um, we were walking on this beautiful Rothschild Boulevard, you know, in uh, in Tel Aviv. And um, out of nowhere, this gentleman comes over. He's apparently, you know, from his dress, he's an Orthodox Jew. And he comes and he says to me, he says, be like the bee, not like the fly. And so I was like, hmm, maybe he's uh, proselytizing. Maybe he um, sees me as somebody from beyond Tel Aviv and is just trying to, like, excite me about his path. I didn't know what was going on in that moment. I hadn't had anybody until then as a stranger just come up to me and talk to me here in Israel. So he said, be like the bee, not like the fly. So I paused there and I said, sir, what do you mean? Uh, I'm, I'm bracing myself, you know, for, for a little bit more of a, you know, evangelistic, pro, you know, proselytizing kind of an attack, right? And, and he says, uh, well, you know what bees do and what flies do? I said, well, what do they do? And he said, with a fly, you can have the most beautiful, like, nature around them. And they're always searching for the dirt. And they're going and picking up the dirt. And then with the bee, you can actually have a lot of trash and garbage out there. But they're always searching for the flower because that's where they will go and make the honey. 
And he says, you and I, we can look at the world as very messy and very troubled and keep looking at that trouble, or we can see it as beautiful for all the great things that life has to afford us. I tell you, I was stunned. I smiled. I expressed my gratitude. I wondered if there was going to be more to that interaction. And there really wasn't. He just smiled at me. And then we had a moment more of just like gentle exchange. And he, and he left. That was it. That's all he wanted to say to me. And it has stayed with me so strongly since then that this was not this gentleman talking to me. This was the universe talking to me. The universe had first started to talk to me 30 minutes ago at dinner, giving me essentially the same message just through the subtle stirrings within me, through my intuition. But I hadn't paid attention to it. I hadn't listened to it. And then the universe felt it had to like shout out this message a little bit more directly to me. <laughs> and so it used the vehicle of this, um, you know, the gentleman who came and spoke about it to me. And um, I wanted to share that story with you because it has been probably one of the most beautiful moments in my life. And it has reinforced in me a belief that everything is connected to everything. And that when experiences happen to us, they happen to us for a reason. And if we are processing it and connecting the dots in the right way, then we'll get more and more of a sense of significance for what seem to otherwise be even the most insignificant things in our life. And I share that with you because I wanted to offer that it is a choice for how we share and craft the stories in our life. These stories are not just given to us on a platter. The life experiences are the things that are happening but it is for us to connect them, interpret them, resolve them, analyze them, think about them, puzzle over them, and then feel like we're getting flashes of insights and breakthroughs. And it is our choice as to what kind of story we really want to make in moments like that. What do you think of that? Is that making sense? How many of you would say like, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, um, I'm a storyteller in my life. I, I actively engage in that muscle of looking through experiences of my life with the passage of time and interpreting them and reinterpreting them and crafting my story this way and that way. And then I'm also active in sharing it with people or not. And sometimes there's a different kind of story and that story is all about the action. Let me share an example with you of a story that is more about turning meaning into action to your point rule, right? So this is a story that was shared by Mother Teresa. And she said that after she'd won the Nobel Prize, she was back in Calcutta doing her work. And one day there was a knock on the door and it was one of the local very poor people, a what they call in Calcutta, a beggar, right? A, a panhandler, right? Somebody who just asks for arms, you know, for money. And it was one of, one, of, one of those who she had known because they had served him in the past. And so she asked him, she said, like, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And he held up his bowl. And in his bowl, he had a small amount of money. Like I think if I recall, it was like a, like a rupee, which is about just a couple of cents. And she said that he told her, that mother, I heard in the community that you won some kind of an international award. And it filled my heart with so much joy that I committed that today, everything that I will earn will be yours. And so I wanted to bring this to you. You know, it is, it is, it is such a powerful story. And she, she, took, she took that little piece of money and she had it on her desk with her as a remembrance of that beautiful heart that this, this, this man had. And this was her way also of illustrating that it is not enough to love, but that we have to put love into action. We're going to talk a lot more about lessons we can learn from that really powerful force in the world, this incredible woman, this incredible saint, this incredible leader, Mother Teresa. 
But that was an example where, do you notice, it wasn't just like some kind of philosophical, inspirational something. It was a real action. And the practical impact of that is just to tell ourselves that anytime we have good intentions, let's find simple, doable, feasible, small step actions through which we are able to express that principle and that value. This is the moment that I want to now invite another story into our midst. And this time, I have the great privilege, not merely of relating it to you or of sharing a video, but of inviting that guest into our midst. And so I'm going to invite now Anna Pavlik to join us. And Anna is going to be with us for the next about five, 10 minutes. Anna, thank you for joining us. Really great to have you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And Anna, since this is a session all on personal journeys, let us just begin right there. Can I invite you to share the personal journey that you did in our Executive MBA personal leadership class? Sure, be happy to. We, in our personal leadership class, I graduated, oh, can't, I can find it hard to believe it's only three years ago. We were talking about how what you did with your life was either a calling or a profession. And clearly for me, my, what I do, I look at as my calling and certainly not my profession. I am a medical oncologist. I've been a medical oncologist now for 20 years. And people will always ask me, oh, Lord, how did you how did you ever pick that? It's such a depressing field. And my story goes back to when I was in third grade. I went to public school and I was given a weekly reader. And I vividly remember on the back of the weekly reader was a picture of a cancer cell. And it described how cancer cells don't know boundaries and cancer cells invade other parts of the body. And this is why people die from cancer because the cells are not controllable. I took that weekly reader home with me. I got home. I, my mom there when I got home and she said to me, so what'd you do today? And I said, I decided that I'm going to be a cancer doctor. And of course, my mother's response to me was, why in heaven's name would you ever want to do that? People people die from cancer. And I said, because I read this and I think I'm smart enough to outsmart cancer. And this is what I'm going to do. Fast forward now, 40 years later, I am an oncologist. I have never given up that calling. And so went to college, went to I was actually in nursing and a pre-med bio major because all of my friends were nurses. So what the heck, I got an extra education. And during my time in college, I met someone and it was, again, a interesting meeting, met accidentally and decided this was the person that I was going to spend my life with. And lo and behold, during my senior year of college, this person came down with leukemia. So rather than go to medical school, I decided that I was going to go to graduate school so that I could spend time and take care of him. Incredibly, that's where all of my nursing background and my nursing skills were actually put into practice. And I took care of him for two years, went to grad school at the same time at night. And then two years into it, when things weren't getting any better and his disease was getting worse, we just decided it was time for me to start applying to medical school and stop putting things off. And so I did. And on the day that I received my acceptance letter to medical school is when he died. And his conversation to me before he passed away was, looks like you need to get on with your life and I need to get on with mine. I hold him and his story in my heart always. 
And so I went to medical school with with his impact, but also the impact that I had from his oncologist. His oncologist taught me what not to do as an oncologist because of the insensitivity that he showed to me and how he provided me with information that I was not ready to hear, ready to accept. And so it really taught me that moving forward, I really needed to talk to patients and talk to families to find out what did they want to hear. They will let you know when they're ready to hear information. And I will always ask them, do you want to know that information? Because once it's out, I can't take it back. And if you're not ready to accept and process that information, then there'll be a time for it and ask me when you're ready. And so I went on to do my training I trained at Sloan Kettering and had always just focused on my career because that was what I knew I was destined to do. During my fellowship, all my friends would always say, you know, you've got this great career. However, that's only one part of your life. You need to have more. And I wasn't convinced I needed to have more. So on a bet, I went on a blind date. The blind date was nothing that I looked for, nothing that I wanted. But that blind date turned into the person that I would wind up marrying. Purely uh, accidental. Turns out that he lived only five miles from me my entire life. I went to high school with his sister. It was just meant to be. I I knew the day that when I met him that it was going to be right. My dog, who always did not like men at all, loved him when he walked in the house. So I kind of looked at Harley and said, you know what, Harley, I think that's going to be your daddy. And we had an incredible life together. He would always tease me and say, we balance each other out. He's like, you've never had any fun in your life because you've always studied. He's like, and I am just a little bit too far out there and you kind of balance me out. And we had such a wonderful life. We had a lot of fun. He really, he made me have fun. And then quite amazingly in 2011, he said to me, something's not right. My belly, my, my belly just doesn't feel right. Now you have to understand my husband was an Italian who lived and his whole life was about food. From the time that I woke up in the morning to the time I went to bed, we talked about what, what do you, what, what was he going to eat next? What were we going to have next? What was our meal planning for tomorrow? And uh, lo and behold, he got diagnosed with cancer. And I just couldn't understand how something that I had dedicated my entire life to had the audacity to step back into my life and take from me what was so important to me yet again. Neil was diagnosed with an exceedingly rare type of cancer. He gave it the best shot he could, and he passed away nine months after being diagnosed. And of course, there was a wide array of emotions for me. Again, there was the anger of why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Uh, Why is this happening to him? Uh, Why is this happening to us? And after after those nine months uh, of watching him suffer, it was much easier to understand that his his calling in life, he had fulfilled what he was meant to fulfill. This was to be another chapter in my life. And I was supposed to learn from this as well. And I did give his eulogy at his funeral. And I didn't write anything. I just tried to speak from the heart. And the first thing that came out of my mouth was honestly, I am so grateful that I had those 20 years together with him. Some people never ever find someone who compliments them, someone who understands them and someone who loves them more than you could ever imagine. 
And I got that. I was so blessed to be able to have that in my life. And I needed to take these experiences and I needed to now learn from that. And it's now given me the ability to talk to patients' families. Uh, When there's a spouse who is dying, there sometimes becomes that connection that I have with that spouse where I, I, I will say to them, I know, I know where you are. I know what you're feeling. And I will share what I've been through. And it really changes how our interaction goes and how they understand that I get it. I get it. That this is not just a job. This is not just a calling. This is this is personal to me. And this is why I am there for people from the time that they walk into my office and say, here you go, take care of me. I will be there until the day that they are either cured and become part of my extended family, or I will be there until they pass away. But I will ensure that they pass away with dignity and knowing that they were loved and cared for. And so it really is all these experiences in my life that I really try to use in a positive way and always look for the next chapter and learn learn from that and be able to share that with others. So I really do thank you for allowing me to come back to school and share my story one more time. Thank you, Dr. Wadwa. I know the story will live on with uh, with all of us, just like it has lived on with me over the years that I've known it, and will be a source of great strength to us in those moments in our life where we feel kind of beaten up by the cards that life deals to us. Because uh, with what you've gone through and the capacity you have to feel a great sense of gratitude, like you've shared, and to to actively express it in all you do and to translate that pain and loss into a greater sense of wisdom and love and service to the world is is a hero's journey. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you're doing for the community and for the example that you're giving to all of us. And I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful that you were open to coming here and sharing this with our friends here as well. So thank you so much question for you, which is, uh, what is your, um, what do you see as your next chapter in life? Well, actually interesting. I am, after 21 years of being in the same place, I'm actually moving on. I am still going to do clinical research. I am still going to be an oncologist. Uh, it's, It's the reason I get out of bed in the morning, but I am going to go change my institution, help build a cancer center, learn from my MBA experiences and allow that to help me help an institution grow a cancer center and provide the kind of care and compassion in the cancer center that I think is so critical because to me, culture and environment really is what helps foster good care. Well, on behalf of all of us, I want to wish you Godspeed and really a beautiful next step as you um, continue on on this path of. yeah, bringing so much strength and grace to a practice, the medical profession that I know those of us who have chosen other career paths in life feel so incredibly dependent on and grateful for. So thank you, Anna. And it is, um, yeah, it's a real joy to have you here. I look forward to having you back on uh, intersections uh, at some point in the near future. But you also set an example to open up this community to their own personal journeys, which I hope we will 
see translate into certain recordings and sharings that we can propagate in the weeks ahead. So yeah, you take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, my friends. I know. I know that's uh, that's just there's just so much power both in Jeff's story and and now especially in Anna's that uh, some of this processing is going to happen over the course of the next several hours and days uh, for you, just as it has for me. Uh, let's take these last few minutes for having me share a couple of other thoughts and ideas around personal journeys. And then I'm going to try to swing us all into action in thinking about a way for you to engage and participate and practice and contribute. First of all, not every story is ready to be shared because sometimes there are certain experiences in life that are still work in progress and you still feel like you're processing, you're still going through a certain kind of like emotional moment and you don't feel really ready yet to share it, perhaps even with a loved one, let alone with the public at large. And I respect that, and we should all respect that, that there are certain stories which are works in progress that are not ready yet. There are also certain stories which are really, in a way, only to be shared in the intimacy between you and the universe. There might be certain things about my my, my past or my unfolding present that I just don't feel that comfortable at like just openly expressing to the world because there's a lot of intimacy, a lot of connection, a lot of just, yeah, just private, maybe perhaps yearnings or struggles or whatever it might be that I might be processing from within. And so I don't want that uh, any of us take away from, from this conversation today the idea that every aspect of our life, we should be freeing and open, opening up to the world, right? So, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Another thing I would offer to you is that uh, stories don't have to be that sort of larger than life or dramatic or really deeply taking you into, for example, a, a space of like pain and loss, et cetera, right? They, they, they may have that. That's a very natural place to go to find the most powerful defining moments in our life. But they don't, they don't have to be that as well. I mean, one of my stories that I find really helpful for me is, is uh, one where my daughter just um, forgot her frog, you know, at uh, a friend's place. And then she came back and said, like, I need to have us go back there and pick up my frog. And we were like, no, it's too late. We can't have you go back there and pick up the frog. Now, by the way, this wasn't any regular frog. This was an origami frog, you know, like a paper kind of like folded in a certain way in the Japanese kind of art of origami. It was an origami frog. And, um, and so in that moment, I, we told her, look, go to sleep. It's too late. You're not going to get that frog right now. But in the morning, we have another sheet of paper like this, that green sheet of paper. So your mom will fold it and make it into another origami frog for you. So you'll have your frog in the morning. And so then she says, no, 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 I want my frog. I want my frog now. <laughs> right. And we were like, ah, you know, she's turning into a devil. What have you done to um, not make her learn proper behavior? And she wants instant gratification. She wants it now. Well, we have to be disciplinarians as parents, we don't want her to grow up in this kind of a crazy way. And so we should assert ourselves and we were Minali, no way. We're going to make that frog for you in the morning. And she was like, no, I want my frog. And we are, we'll make it for you in the morning. She's like, I want my frog. We were again, getting very firm with her. And then she looks at us and she says, if you make it for me in the morning, it won't be the same frog. And suddenly my heart burst open because I realized that she was not protesting the fact that we were saying we will give it to her in the morning. It wasn't instant gratification. It wasn't any kind of just like disobedience. It was this idea that she had that we were going to replace her actual frog with a new piece of folded paper frog. And she wanted her frog. And then I realized she must have an emotional relationship with that piece of folded paper, that wrinkled, like, like old, like frog of hers. She must have a relationship with that frog in the same way as we have a relationship with her. Maybe she thinks of that frog as her little baby. 
And maybe she's wondering that, look, if my parents are so casual about relationships, what is going to happen tomorrow? They're going to leave me in some summer camp and they'll come back and then they'll say, no, what's the point of like going there to pick her up? Let's just kind of like make another baby. <laughs> so, um, so I realized in that moment, like we as parents need to be better listeners. We need to be tuning in to what's happening in the inner life of, you know, of our child. And if in that moment, rather than tell her, look, we will make a frog for you in the morning. If we had just simply said, Manali, you seem a little bit extra upset. We, we offered that we will make the frog in the morning. What is it about not having it with you between now and the morning that is upsetting to you? And she might have said, well, what's upsetting to me is that you are copping out on going to the friend's place and picking up my frog and you're just seeking to replace it with some brand new frog. I don't want a brand new frog. I want my frog. We say, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, then in the morning we'll go and pick it up from the friend's place, right? I mean, we could easily have done that, all right? Did, did you notice then that story? I mean, it's, it's, it's not very profound, but it's, uh, it's, it's an everyday happenstance moment. But in these everyday moments in your life and mine, you know, they're rich with the possibilities of stories. So let us, uh, let us recognize that there is laden all through our life, just a whole lot of raw material that we can use to translate into stories. The story that I've shared with you about my daughter, I use it in executive sessions to teach about moving from a knower mindset to a learner mindset. And I want to like reflect with these executives about how this is just an instinct that all of us have when we feel we are the experts in the room. We are the elders in the room. We are the seniors in the room. And so therefore, we will unleash our genius and our wisdom on the more junior folks, on the less expert folks, et cetera, right? But sometimes it's actually the opposite. We need to tune in and listen and understand, right? Okay, so, so that's a little, little thought for you. I like to encourage keeping these stories. Again, you know, some of them are, 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 are a life journey. They're not just a story. They're about three or four stories embedded into one. Anna's was an example of that. You know, that, that, was, that, that was really a powerful journey all through her life with, with four or five really, really powerful chapters in it. But, but in general, if you're interacting with, with people and, and with your own self and you're kind of trying to codify a certain lesson or an idea, I recommend keeping the story to about three minutes, right? Three and a half minutes. Maybe if you stretch it, then it becomes sort of like four or five minutes. I think Jeff's story was something in that range, right? But something in that three to five minute range. And, um, and also recognize that uh, you should have a certain aspiration as to how you want that story to land. What is it that you want that story to kind of like be imparting to the other party. But you don't always have to actually share that goal or objective. You can, as one of you was sharing earlier, leave it up to them for their own interpretation. Or you can actually give them a very punchy takeaway. And that is a choice you make based on how you want to play the story out. You either allow them to make their own conclusions, but in the back of your mind, there is the anticipation that they're going to be able to draw these kinds of conclusions from it or you actually express that conclusion, either upfront or at the end of the story. You can put a little bit of suspense and mystery and drama in the story. Do you notice that in my story with my, my daughter, I started by talking about how she forgot her frog. I did not tell you that it was not a real frog. Maybe some of you are thinking like, what kind of a family is this that has a frog as a pet, <laughs> right? And then I brought that part in that it was an origami frog, but by delaying the divulgence of that fact, I created a little bit of suspense and perhaps at the end, maybe a little bit of humor, right? And so these kinds of embellishments can help you perhaps keep the audience a little bit more engaged along the way. And lastly, I want to offer you that always tell stories for a reason. Always do it in the service of your audience. This is not about you seeking to vent 
or seeking to just kind of like lighten your load. Yes, there are moments when we need to do that. And we have the right people in our lives, hopefully for all of us, who we can use as support like that. But when I'm talking here about your personal journey, I'm talking about it with the sole objective of lifting yourself and lifting others up to their highest potential. And what that means is that the story should always have some kind of an inspirational, redemptive, you know, growth aspect to it. There's something in that story at the end, despite the struggle, despite the loss, despite whatever it might be. At the end of the day, there is some insight or some inspiration that you and I and we can all carry from that story that allows us to become our better selves. On that note, thank you so much for joining us today. 